This evening's reading is Isaiah chapter 61, which can be found on page 748 in the Church Bibles. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up, and a garden causes the seed to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is God's word. Great. Thanks, Lewis. Please do keep that open in front of you and turn to the back of the notice sheet. You'll find an outline of where we're going tonight. And let me add my welcome to Ollie's. My name's Andy Towner. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to uh, be with you tonight. And what a great passage it is to look at. So uh, let's pray and then we'll come to God's word together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you're the speaking God. And that you speak to each and every one of us personally tonight as your word is read and explained. Father, we praise you that you're not only the speaking God, but you're the God who knows each and every one of us and who knows what we need. So please, Father, might you feed us. If we're weak, strengthen us. If we're cold, warm us. If we're proud, humble us. Father, you know us. You know what we need. Please. Might you be pleased to give it to us? And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a natural question. It's a question we find ourselves asking all the time, in all sorts of different situations. We naturally ask ourselves the question, what's in it for me? What does it do for me? So you get a change to your bank's way of charging your account, and you read through it, and you're thinking, well, should I change or not? What's in it for me? You um, are invited to apply for a new job. You ask the question, what's in it for me? 
what would it be like to go and do that job? What are the benefits of now? What would be the change if I went there? You ask that question all the time in a million different ways when you're looking for a loan or a mortgage or a credit card, at a house or a flat, at holidays or hobbies, when you're looking at your friendship groups and just trying to prioritise in the mad place that is London. Well, all the time we're asking the question, what's in it for me? What does it do for me? And I take it you can ask that question in a bunch of different ways. You can ask that question in a very committed sort of way. I love my job. But I'm just asking the question, what does it do for me? Just to help me sort of analyse it, to reflect on it. Or you can come at that question in a kind of, I'm not sure, so I'm going to use this as a diagnostic. What's in it for me? Hmm. Or you could be entirely outside of something, maybe thinking of a career change or something. And the way of deciding might be, what's in that for me? And in those three ways, we naturally ask the same question about God and about Jesus and about church and about what Christians believe. We naturally, even if we're 100% committed to Jesus, we'll naturally find ourselves from time to time asking the question, well, what's in it for me? What does it do for me? Well, tonight's passage has got a great answer to that. We might find ourselves kind of, hmm, 50-50. We're sort of in the habit of coming to church, but we're not really sure. And a good diagnostic question might be, what's in it for me? Tonight's passage has got a great answer for that question. We might be here and not want to call ourselves a Christian at all. Let me encourage you, ask the question, what would be in it for you? And the Bible, you see, has hundreds of different, beautiful, diverse, stunning answers to that question. What does God do for me? What can God do for me? What can the gospel offer me? What can Jesus help me with? The Bible says God's the shepherd. The Bible says God is the husband to the widow, the father to the orphan. All sorts of brilliant answers, and most of the best of them are right here in this passage. What's in it for me? And that's why Jesus chose to use this passage for the start of his earthly ministry. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 4, the very first public statement that Jesus Christ ever made when he lived and walked on earth. Then Jesus went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. The first public thing that Jesus did was to read out this passage and say, It's fulfilled now. All these blessings. All these great promises, all these things that God offers to you and can do for you, they're fulfilled now in me. And actually, that helps us understand who's speaking here in Isaiah 61. The the character that speaks, who stands up and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Well, they're not introduced in Isaiah. We haven't met them really before. At the end of the last chapter, God's speaking, and suddenly someone else stands up and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. But knowing that Jesus took these words on his lips, 
helps us understand the person who's speaking. Twice before in Isaiah, you've heard this phrase, the spirit being on someone. Twice before, two different people. Because in Isaiah, you've got this suffering servant. You meet in Isaiah chapter 42, for example. God says, the way that I'm going to sort all this mess out, the way that I'm going to heal uh, this world, this universe, the way I'm going to bring blessings to all those who are struggling, is someone's going to come and suffer for them. Someone's going to come and be amongst them and suffer in their place and take all the badness, all the evil, all the curse. We've met this suffering servant in Isaiah. And the spirit of the sovereign Lord's upon him. But we've met someone else in Isaiah who has the spirit of the sovereign Lord on them too. We've met a victorious conqueror in Isaiah's early chapters, particularly chapter 11. We've met this ruling monarch, this king. And the way that God's going to solve the problems that his people are going through is by a monarch who's going to be good. Who's going to bring about blessing by good laws, by good rule, by loving governments. And they're two separate people until this point. But actually we begin to see here in Isaiah 61 and we see certainly in Jesus' life that the suffering servant is the ruling monarch. That's why Jesus takes these words on his lips at the very start. I am the spirit-filled one. I am the one who will suffer, be scorned, rejected. I will be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I will be the one pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities. I will be the suffering one. But I am also the ruling king, powerful, authoritative, strong. You see, Jesus Christ, he is both crucified on a cross in public ignominy and raised to life in a public display of God's um, affirmation of his kingship, risen to rule, Lord of the universe. Jesus is the suffering king who embodies this spirit-filled person in Isaiah's prophecy. And he's going to show us, what's in it for me? What can God do for me? What is the point of being a Christian at all? Whether we are one, we're wavering, or whether we're just thinking about it. What's in it for us? We want to see three little things tonight. God's promised blessings, God's perfect character, and God's people's response. Firstly then, his promised blessings. That's the first six verses. And all sorts of pictures here that basically come down to three things. Pleasure, permanence, and prosperity. Verses 1 to 3, it's all about pleasure. You see, if you're brokenhearted, verse 1, you're going to be bound up. If you're a captive, you're going to be freed. If you're a mourner, you're going to be comforted. The picture is of serious stress and the need, the desperate need of urgent relief into which instantaneously God brings joy and gladness. Here is the most compassionate and loving God you could ever ask for. If you're crushed, he won't compound it. He'll comfort you. If you're bruised, he won't break you. He'll breathe life into you. If you're exhausted, he won't exacerbate it. He'll enliven you. And verse 3 gives us the details. How's he going to provide for those who grieve in Zion? If you're wearing ashes, you'll be given beauty. If you're in mourning, you'll be given gladness. If you're in despair, you'll turn to praise. Now, ashes, that's the ritual mourning they used to do back then. If you you were ritually mourning, perhaps someone in your family had died, you'd cover yourself in ashes. 
And God says those who are covered in ashes will be given a crown of beauty. It is a little, but perhaps only a little bit like the film Miss Congeniality. Which is, this is one for either the women or the married men, being a rom-com. Miss Congeniality, Sandra Bullock is a beat cop. And uh, they need someone to go undercover in um, the Miss World competition. So there you are at the beginning of the film, and she's um, a beat cop. Uh, is it fair to say not looking great? And of course, they have to do her up so she can go undercover in Miss World, and she has to have, I don't know what done, hair, eyebrows, makeup, you know, I don't know. She has to have stuff done. You get this... Let me, I just don't want to bore you with the details. I mean, I, it's not like I don't know them. It's just that I'm not, I'm not sharing them with you. This beat cop becomes this beauty queen. She's gone from ashes to given those silly little almost crowns that beauty queens seem to wear all the time. The picture of mourning is of tears streaming down your face. You've got ashes. Your, your face is dark. But your skin color does come through where the tears are washing away the ash because you're full of mourning. Instead of that, God promises the beautiful oil of gladness. Instead of hardship pouring down your face, blessing will be pouring down your face. Instead of the sackcloth of despair, you'll be wearing the brightest clothes of joy. God is saying, the tears and clothes you wear at a funeral become the tears and clothes of a wedding. The tears and clothes of a funeral become the tears and clothes of a wedding. Instantaneously, God will bring pleasure, pleasure, freedom, comfort, joy. But not just pleasure, he'll bring permanence, verses 3 and 4. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. Here's a picture of slow maturing. Oaks don't grow overnight, and reconstruction of broken walls isn't something you do in a day. Here's slow maturing. The problem I have with this verse, I don't know about you, but I associate oaks with seven oaks. And any of us who've existed in 1987 or have heard about the the great big storms will know that seven oaks is now one oak. Because there were seven great big oaks that seven oaks was called seven oaks because of. And a storm came along that Michael Fisher assured us wasn't going to happen. And the storm came along and seven oaks became one oak overnight. So oaks don't, in my head, really... Um, mean much about permanence. In fact, I checked it out on the website. Uh, After there was just one oak, they then planted six more oaks, which lasted two years. They were vandalized. So they then got trashed. So then they planted nine oaks. So seven oaks is now actually nine oaks, because they're pretty sure that at least two won't make it. So oaks has no kind of permanence going for me at all. So instead of oaks, think giant redwoods. Think giant redwoods. Giant redwoods are very, very cool trees. The bark of a giant redwood can be up to three foot thick. There are a number of redwoods in the States that have got roads straight through the middle of them. And they're still healthy growing trees. You can have some fun finding pictures online if you want to. The largest one is 17 meters wide at foot. And the oldest one is over 3,500 years old. That means it was planted before Moses walked on the earth. These are awesome trees. Huge great things. That's what we need to think. Not seven oaks, one oak, pity little nine oaks now. Redwoods. Huge great things. They don't grow overnight, but they're permanent. God gives pleasure, He gives permanence. Who cares about permanence? Well, combine it with pleasure. You see, all good things come to an end, don't they? 
Well, no, they don't. The pleasure of verses 1 to 3 doesn't come to an end. It's permanent. It'll last for years. The beauty queen can get dressed up for a night. But six hours later, 24 hours later, not here, permanence. Thirdly, prosperity, verses 5 and 6. This is not xenophobia, having aliens shepherding your flock. It's just a picture of prosperity. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Pleasure, permanence, and enough money to afford workers, shepherds and workers. Three lovely pictures of God's promised blessings. But you need to notice two things before we move on. Did you notice in verse 1 who these blessings are for? They're not for everyone. In, in an important sense. They're not for everyone. Verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. You see, if you're rich, or if you're content, or if you're sorted, or if you're permanent, or if you're happy, or if you're not enslaved, if you're not crying, if you're not mourning, if you're beautiful already, there's no promises here for you. Do you notice that? It's good news to the poor. And if you're not poor, there's nothing to look forward to. You've got it all already. And that's why the middle of the beginning of verse 2 is so important. Because the same day has two effects. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. It's the same day. This day is a great day for the poor. But it's not a great day for everyone. It's a day of vengeance. We'll come back to why as we go through. But if we're not poor, God might need to give us the blessings of poverty so that we can then look forward to these blessings that we actually need. Good news is for the poor. Secondly, the good news is really God. Verse 6, which I left out, and you will be called priests of the Lord's, and you will be named ministers of our God. Amazing blessings, beauty, pleasure, permanence, prosperity. But the real blessing is actually God himself. It's access to God. That's what a priest has, a minister has. They are those who access God. They are in his presence, doing his will, priests and ministers. The truth is that loving God for what he gives just is not enough. Loving God for what he gives you is never enough going to be enough to get you through this life. When life gets hard, if you just love God for the blessings he offers you, you may very well fall away. You may very well stop loving. Because the blessing is God himself and not the stuff he gives you. So the most popular book ever outside the Bible, at least before Harry Potter and the Twilight series came along, was a book called Pilgrim's Progress, written by a pastor in this country 400 years ago. And it's an allegory of a man called Christian as he walks the Christian walk. And right at the beginning, he sets out to walk for the wicket gate that is the the place of conversion where you become a Christian. He knows he's got to do it. And he's walking towards it, and he's got two neighbors in his town. One's Mr. Obstinate, and one's Mr. Pliable. And he persuades them to start walking with him. He tries to anyway. Mr. Obstinate says, no, 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 I'm not coming. But Mr. Pliable, he's persuaded. And as they're walking along, they're not even at the gate yet. They haven't become Christians yet. They're just starting out. As they're walking along, Mr. Pliable says, well, what's in it for me? And Christian says, you'll get a crown. 
Great. What else? You'll get glory. Great. What else? You'll get riches. Great. What else? You'll have beauty. And he, he lists all the blessings that come from knowing God and being one of his people. And as they're walking along, they fall into something called the slough of despond. So the bog, which is a, a symbol of trouble, hardship, difficulty. And as they fall in, Christian perseveres and goes out the other sides and he walks straight to the gate. But Mr. Pliable, as soon as life gets hard at all, he says, this is pointless. This is awful. And he turns around and he sets off back to his home and he gives up on even thinking about God. Doesn't get as far as even becoming a Christian. Because he was just there for what was what the blessings were. And the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he's saying, the blessings won't get you anywhere. Loving God for the blessings won't get you anywhere. Illustration. Katie and I, my wife and I, just watched My Fair Lady, the original film, uh, Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison, uh, 1960s. Absolutely brilliant film. And the film is defined by two songs, sung by this, um, uh, this girl. She'd been um, a flower salesman. Flower, flower seller and she sings this very moving song at the beginning all I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air with one enormous chair oh wouldn't it be lovely lots of chocolate for me to eat lots of coal making lots of heat warm face, warm hands, warm feet wouldn't it be lovely and this Professor Higgins he offers her the chance for all that because he says I'll teach you to speak properly in six months, I can take you from being a flower girl and I can take you to the embassy ball. You can set up a boutique and sell to all the rich people. I can totally change your social status if you come for six months. So she comes to his house and he's got a Gucci house and he takes her to Ascot. She, she's got her own bedroom. She's actually got a bed. She's got maids. She's got chocolate. She's got everything she ever wanted. And then in the second half, she sings this song, hating Professor Higgins. Just you wait, Henry Higgins. Just you wait. You'll be sorry, but your tears will be too late. You see, she has got everything she asked for in that first song. Warm, warm face, warm hands, warm feet, lots of chocolate for her to eat. Any number of enormous chairs, and it doesn't satisfy her. Because what she wants is a relationship with Professor Higgins. She doesn't want something... She wants someone. The same for us. These are amazing blessings that God promises. But actually, the question, what, what can it do for me, is both a natural question and the wrong one. Because we're not designed to be satisfied with some things. We're built for a relationship with someone. So we need to look at God's perfect character. That's verses 7 to 9. Verses 1 to 6, you've got this spirit-anointed, suffering monarch speaking. And now you get God himself speaking. It's very clear in verse 8, for I the Lord. It's God the Lord speaking here. And he reveals why these blessings will happen. And basically we see that God defines the blessings, delivers the blessings, and and displays the blessings. He defines them, he delivers them, and displays them. First of all, it's God that defines what is good. The truism, isn't it, that we um, naturally as humans make God in our own image. So that in the 21st century, for example, God has got to be, at the very least, pluralist and non-judgmental. That's, that's just assumed, isn't it? Because as 
natural human beings, we make God in our own image, and we say God's got to be like that. That's what we do all the time. Brackets. Of course, in the right sense, God is both of those things. So is God pluralist? Yeah. I mean, there's not many ways to know God. You have to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not many ways to heaven. It's by faith alone. But anyone can come. God is pluralist in that he invites the seven billion people on this planet. All come. Just come. As you are. Haven't got to do anything. Haven't got to be anything. Haven't got to have anything. Just come. He's rightly pluralist, isn't he? Really. We need not to be scared of that. He's non-judgmental too, of course, isn't he? Because God says, I don't need to punish your sins. God says, just come to me. And I'll forgive you in Jesus. So we don't need to be thrown by 21st century saying God has to be non-judgmental and pluralist. He rightly understood he is. But just as we naturally remake God in our own image, we need to listen instead to what the Bible says. Because no culture is ever going to make God rightly in its own image because no culture is going to be perfect. What's the God of the Bible like? Well, he defines what is good, and he defines what is good as justice. Verse 8. I, the Lord, I love justice, and I hate robbery and iniquity. Here we've heard about the poor, the, blind, the, the brokenhearted, the captives, those imprisoned in darkness, those mourning, those who grieve. And God looks at all that and says, no, 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 I don't love that. I love justice. I don't love robbery. I love goodness. I don't love evil. But I hate evil. You see, God defines what is good by his own character. And as God is, so the world is and will be. That's quite obvious, isn't it? Um, Elections matter because who our prime minister is affects who the country is. Then the most important member of a school is the headmaster. They're the person who, or the head, they have the most impact on what the school's like. Well, play a thought experiment and make different gods god of the universe and let the universe take on the qualities of those gods. God's in inverted commas with a small g. I was just playing with this. Two little thoughts. What if the Chuckle Brothers were God of the Universe? What would, what would the universe be like if the Chuckle Brothers... Uh, for those of you who don't watch children's TV, they're brothers who chuckle. Okay, so now you're with us. Okay, if the Chuckle Brothers were, were, the gods of the, were God of the Universe, the key thing in the universe would be laughter. Everything's funny, or quote funny. But the problem with the Chuckle Brothers is, you could be the person holding the, the, the great big plank across your shoulder, and you're the one that's turning around, and it's hitting people in the face, and that's funny. But in their universe, you could be the person that gets hit in the face by the plank, and people are laughing at you. So it'd be kind of an interesting universe to live in. Would you want the Chuckle Brothers to define your universe? It'd be fun if you got to hold the plank. It wouldn't be so fun if you got hit by the plank. I don't know. So think of someone else who could run the universe. Well, why not have a businessman run the universe? Let's have Richard Branson. I don't know anything about Richard Branson very much. Let's imagine Richard Branson was running the universe. The most important thing would be I don't know, success. And again, that would be great, wouldn't it, if you were successful? If you were on the winning team, it would be kind of an eternal uh, episode of The Apprentice, wouldn't it? And if you keep on winning, you're fine. Great. But there are successes and failures in life, and not everyone makes it to the top. If a businessman ran the universe, great for some, not for all. What if Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Lord here in this passage, what if he ran the universe? You get justice. You get fairness. You get no robbery, no evil, no violence, no imprisonment, no death, no mourning. You get goodness. 
because God is good and he defines the universe. God defines what is good. And then he delivers it. Look at verse 8. I, the Lord, I love justice. I hate robbing iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. You see, God not only defines what is good, but he delivers it. He promises it. He makes this unbreakable promise that the Bible calls a covenant. It's an unbreakable legal promise in the Bible. And it's exactly what Jesus uses to describe what he is about to achieve on the cross. The key thing he says before he goes to the cross is, this will be a new covenant in my blood. You see, the way that God has to deliver this perfect universe of justice is to do with the suffering king. See, God hates the injustice and the mess of this world, but he still has to be just in the way that he deals with those who mess the world up. He cares so much about justice that he punishes his own son on the cross so that Jesus Christ becomes a suffering servant, scorned, ill-treated. You look at great historical figures like Wilberforce and think he really cared about justice. He worked night and day for the whole of his life to, to, to gain freedom for slaves. God loves justice a lot more than he did. You look at Martin Luther King and you think of all the campaigning he did on civil rights. God loves justice a whole lot more than he did. God loves justice so much that he promises it with a covenant bond, unbreakable legal vow. And he fulfills that on the cross in the death and blood of his son so that there will be one day a universe of justice and righteousness. In verse 7, the key word is instead... Verse 7 makes it clear what we deserve, shame, disgrace, and what we receive, a double portion of blessing, uh, an inheritance, an everlasting joy. That's what had to go on at the cross with the suffering servants. He became cursed that we might become blessed. He became scorn and disgrace that we might become double portion. He was given by God what we deserve so that we're rightly given what he deserved this is the amazing exchange of the cross the amazing exchange of the suffering servant who's also the king see God defines justice he delivers sorry he defines what's good he delivers what's good and then he displays it verse 9 it'll be seen amongst the nations it'll be seen around the world see God's people will be seen to enjoy goodness and everyone will say wow they're blessed now, easier to see how that would work back then because God's community was a nation. So they would look different to other nations. So back then, 600 BC, God's community had laws to protect the vulnerable, what other nations didn't. God's nation had rules to care for children, other nations didn't. God's nation had enforced days off for workers, other nations didn't. It was very obvious, wasn't it, back then to see what God's community would look like as defined by God and delivered by God. More complex today because God's community is not a nation with national boundaries. We're a family. All over the world, all over every town and city and village. But also today, I guess, each and most nations are affected by Christianity so we can see aspects of these truths. And of course, it remains true today that God's ways are the fairest. Therefore, a way to judge the goodness of a company or the goodness of a nation is always going to be to put them against God's ways. And say, so, you know, God defines fairness. Let's see how they shape up. 
It's a helpful thing to do communally. Also individually, of course, because we as God's people, as God works in us and keeps changing us, we'll define, we'll demonstrate, we'll show what is just and fair and good and true. Uh, the people who observe you in your office or in your flat or in your family or in your team or, or on your days off, they'll look at you and see goodness because God is working that in you. You see, God defines what is good. God alone defines that. God delivers what is good. He makes a vow. And he's so committed, he even goes to the cross and the person of his son to deliver it. And he displays it in his people. Yes, more robustly back then, but even still today, even in each and every one of us, as we live out our lives before a watching world. How should we respond? God's people's response. Basically, the response is thanksgiving. And for two things in particular, thankful for who you are and thankful for what you will be. Verse 10. First, it's, one to say, it's amazing this in verse 10. You actually get Isaiah responding to this. Verse 1 to 6, Isaiah, he's a prophet. He's writing down what God's anointed says. Verses 7, 8, 9, he's writing down what God the Lord says. And then suddenly he just breaks out as you hear Isaiah himself respond to what he's been writing. He says, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in God, because he has clothed me with garments of righteousness. He's the model for our response as he thanks God for what God has fully, finally, and completely done. You see, for the Christian, we can look through verses 1 to 3 a little bit like this. I was poor, but I heard good news. I was brokenhearted, but I was bound up with the gospel. I was a captive to sin, but I've been freed by the spirits. I was awaiting God's vengeance. I now enjoy his favor. I was in mourning, but now I'm comforted. No ashes, but beauty. No mourning, but gladness. No despair, but praise. As a Christian, this has all been done once and for all when we became Christians. God has radically changed us instantaneously. And he's given us these garments, verse 10. Garments of salvation, arrayed in a robe of righteousness. It used to be the case in Ethiopia that the bridegroom provided the bride's wedding dress. Personally, I'm quite happy that that's not uh, true nowadays. I think that would be quite a lot of pressure. I was quite happy to let Katie go and choose it and have lots of good time with her mum doing so and took months over it. But back then, in Ethiopia, that's how it was done. The bridegroom would spend the money. The bridegroom would do the work to present his bride beautiful on the day of the wedding. Isn't that a great picture of the gospel? that all of us who will be the bride of Christ, we will be there one day in white robes designed by the bridegroom, purchased by the bridegroom, made personally for each and every one of us. And that's what Isaiah is rejoicing in. I've been given garments of salvation and arrayed in robes of righteousness. In looking at the blessings and finding God himself, I am righteous. And in God's sight, I'm as beautiful as a bride and a bridegroom, and so are we all as Christians. You see, that's what happens if you admit you're poor. In the, in the My Fair Lady story, of course, Eliza Doolittle, when she was selling flowers and, and just crying out for a lump of coal, she, uh, Professor Higgins offers her everything, and he, she, she could have just said, no, I'm all right. She could have said, no, I'm all right. And the next day, she'd still be crying out for coal, still with freezing hands, still in the same clothes she'd been living in for years. But because she said, I am poor, I need this, she got everything. 
beautiful clothes, box of ascots, uh, embassy ball, the whole lot. Because she was humble enough to say, I'm poor, I need this. She, she got it. That's what Isaiah's rejoicing in, the garments of salvation. Thank God for who we are. But we also thank God for what we will be, verse 11. Because the soil makes young plants spring up. As the garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. You see, we're still growing. We're still changing. We're still having righteousness bloom up in us. Individually, we're like a little shoot poking out of some earth. And when the little shoot starts, you know what's going to happen. A great flower is going to bud. Communally, we're like a whole sea of little shoots in a, in, in a, in a wilderness. So you know that communally, there's going to be this blossoming of righteousness. It's going to be visible to all. We rejoice in what we are. We're clothed in righteousness. But we rejoice in what we will be as it continues to spring up, as God does that work. You see, in Isaiah's day, when he said verse 10... He was saying something that was true, but it was only in bud. And then in Jesus' day, when he stands up and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing now, he was saying something that was true and had moved from bud to flower. But even now, we still await the perfect fulfillment of all this, where one day from bud to flower, we'll actually get fruit. One day on that final day, this will be fully and completely and perfectly true. The world will be perfectly just, perfectly right. We will be perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly holy. So rejoice and give thanks for what we are. And also give thanks for what we will be as we look forward to that day. What should you feel at the end of this passage? Remember our question at the start? What does it do for me? What's in it for me? Yes, in a sense, it's a wrong question, but it's such a natural question. Do we see there's a great answer? There's a brilliant answer. Beauty. Permanence. Peace. Pleasure. Prosperity. Everything good. And I wonder whether, at the end of this passage, you feel like me, that it's so important to speak a lot of this one man who can do it. It's a joy to welcome Simon here tonight, first day at church, here to teach us about Jesus, here to be a pastor, a minister. Brother, tell us about this man. Tell us about this man who stood up and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for I have come to preach good news to the poor. He's the man who can bind up the brokenhearted. He's the man who can comfort the mourning. He's the man that can bring freedom to captives. Tell us about him. And I wonder whether you're anything like me and you find that there's a me that you so naturally talk about. The me that I talk about all the time is me. Occasionally I talk about my young son because he's fun and he's only you know, nine weeks old. But generally I'd just rather talk about me, actually. And when people come to me and talk to me, I just find it so easy to talk about me as if I can solve their problems and I can bind up their broken hearts and I can free them from their captivities. And I can't. But there's a man who can. And if I get Isaiah 61, I'll be so captivated by all that he can do that the me I'm going to want to talk about is the me that stood up in Nazareth and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Do you see? He's the man. Because he can do all these things. Why don't we pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the one who had your spirit on him to preach good news to the poor. We praise you for all that he can do and has done. We praise you more for who you are, the God, the Lord, who loves justice. And then that because of who you are, these things are sure and certain for the future. And we do rejoice, Father, in all that you've made us. We rejoice in all that you will make us, and we long that you help us be more and more excited by, obsessed by this man, that we might speak of him lots, point each other to him lots, knowing that he truly can bind up the brokenhearted and comfort all those who mourn. And we ask in his name. Amen.